All right. Well, we are continuing in our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. We're getting close to the end of it. And uh, before we get into it, uh, early in the church's history, in the late 290s to the early 300s, the church was under intense persecution by an emperor named Diocletian. Now, the church had been under persecution before, but it tended to be kind of localized in certain areas, like Rome, for example, was always a place that there was a lot of persecution. But Diocletian's persecution was a different animal. It was, it's known in church history as the third century crisis because his, his motivation was a true genocide. He wanted to kill every single Christian in the Roman Empire. And the reason was kind of, Strange, Diocletian had been a soldier, and soldiers in the Roman army worshipped a certain set of gods. And he could not understand the strangeness of this Christian movement who refused to fight for Rome, but on top of that, they refused to even fight to defend themselves. And Diocletian didn't see that as a virtuous thing. He saw that as a very strange thing. It was so strange and so ungodly that it needed to be removed from the Roman Empire. The Christians, you might be somewhat ironic to find out, were actually accused of atheism, which is why they were being rooted out by Diocletian. And under Diocletian's persecution, some of the leaders of the early church surrendered scriptures and other items which were considered holy in order for them to be destroyed. At this point, you started to begin to see in the, in the church's history the beginning of kind of the priesthood and also the beginning of the idea of relics and things like that. But the scriptures were the biggest deal being surrendered because this is before the printing press and everything was written by hand and, and to surrender the scriptures was a big deal. And the people who surrendered these were called traditors, not traitors. Trade, the word traitor comes from traditor. But they were called tradator, which comes from the Latin word to hand over. And before we get too judgy about this, you have to remember that these people were facing persecution on the likes of being skinned alive, slow roasted over coals, or even worse than that, not so much what would happen to you, but what the Romans were willing to do to your children or to your spouses and to the people you loved. And so some people gave over the scriptures, they gave over holy items to be burned, and they were called tradators. Well, you can imagine in the early church then, once this persecution ended, and it's somewhat ironic that right after this worst persecution of Diocletian, the eventual emperor that unites the, the, unites the Romans is Constantine, and the, and the thing totally shifts to a place where Constantine is actually supportive of the church. But during the time in between the, these, these, uh, these emperors, there was this question, what do you do with the traditors? Are the traditors just completely lost? Is there any hope for them? Can they be involved in the church anymore? And church history is a little bit unclear as to how exactly they kind of worked out the deal with the traditors. But there is this time that later on takes place in North Africa, and it's called the Donatists Crisis. And what the Donatists said, they were a group of Christians in North Africa, which used to be a strong point for Christianity before Islam rolled through. They said that anyone that had been a traditor could no longer be considered a place of clergy, 
And in fact, anything that that person had ever done, even before being a traditor, that had to do with the rites of the church, be it baptisms or marriages or uh, uh, ordaining other priests, was completely undone. So you can imagine kind of the cascading effect this would have. If this person who became a traditor had blessed these, these people to be priests, then also every marriage they had done, every baptism they had done, was no longer valid. And so this became an issue because all of a sudden these folks are being told, your baptism is no longer valid, your marriage is no longer valid. And so this argument began to, to go between the Donatist and this guy named Augustine, who was the Bishop of Hippo, which is in North Africa. And they went back and forth about the discussion. And to make a long story short, Augustine argued. And Augustine's an interesting guy. You, you actually, there's a lot of Catholic churches named after him. Some people say Augustine. Some say Augustine. He was one of the, the very formative early church theologians around the 400s. And he, did some, he wrote some things that were good. He wrote some things that we're still paying for today, which were not so good. The idea of the celibate clergy, for example, came from Augustine. Uh, anyways... He said in this case, he said it's the intention of the person receiving the rite that is important. The conscience of the person receiving the baptism or the conscience of the people receiving the marriage. It's not the person who is doing it, but it's the person receiving it that is important. And therefore, their marriages, baptisms, whatever, should still be considered valid, even if the person who had uh, performed those rites later on became a traditor. And I think most of us would agree with Constantine's point of view. But what I found interesting in studying this whole thing about you know, church history, I'm kind of a history geek for those of you who may not know, uh, is that in the writings back and forth between Augustine and these bishops in, in, who were the Donatists that said, no, clergy have to have never been a traditor. Clergy must be pure in order to stay clergy. There was never talk about Peter's denial of Christ and his reinstatement by Jesus. They never bring up Peter, that Peter had denied Christ three times, and yet he had found forgiveness in Christ. That's never brought up. Judas is brought up all the time in the writings back and forth. And in fact, Judas is brought up in the context of, well, the, the traitors are worse than Judas because at least Judas repented and had the good sense to kill himself, which actually isn't a good sense thing at all. Killing yourself after a grievous sin is just another step of hopelessness. It's a belief that there is no forgiveness for you because even though Christ died for all the sins of the world, you are the exception. It's actually kind of a point of spiritual pride, to be honest with you. But that one gets brought up all the time, but there's never any talk about Peter. And I asked my professors you know, early in my, uh, you know, when I was going to seminary, when I first heard the story, well, why didn't they, why didn't they ever you know, talk about Peter? And my professors, they didn't know. There was just never anything in there. They just never talked about him. So the passage we're looking at today deals with Peter's denial of Christ. And let's read it. It's interesting. If you ever look at medieval art, that, that, by the way, this is just an aside. It's interesting how medieval artists, they would, they would uh, paint guards as if they were in their contemporary time. If you ever go to the Vatican and you look at the artwork, this is one reason why we have a blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus in our heads. Because Europeans painted him as a contemporary of who they were. And you even see it within this picture here, this guy who's the guard with the feather in his cap. That's not how Roman guards looked. This is how medieval guards looked. 
And you'll see this a lot in, in old paintings. That's just, there's your little art history right there. But it says this in Matthew 26. It says, Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard. So Jesus is arrested. Peter follows at a distance. We learn, later learn John actually goes in and is part of this discussion. This courtyard still exists today. And he's in the courtyard. And Peter's kind of on the outskirts of it. And he says, When he's sitting out in the courtyard, the servant girl came to him. You are also with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. Now, we don't know what that oath specifically was. But he denied it with an oath. Something like, you know, under the name of God, I deny this. I do not know this man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses upon himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside, and he wept bitterly. Now, as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, we've, we've, kind of, we've talked about kind of a foreshadowing of this incident several times. We talked about the fact that Peter most likely believed his big test of faith was going to be having to defend Jesus. And he does that. You know, he's a fisherman. He, he takes a sword, which he probably isn't all that familiar with how to use in a professional way. And when they come to arrest Jesus, he takes a swing, at, obviously, at some guy's head, but misses and slices off an ear. And he gets told by Jesus to put the sword away, for those who live by the sword shall die by the sword. And we've also talked a little bit about Peter's eventual reinstatement by Christ. That at the end of John's gospel in particular, we see that there's this reinstatement where Peter is asked by Jesus three times, do you love me? And Peter responds to him, Lord, you know I love you, but then the level kind of changes. Jesus begins, do you love me unconditionally? Peter always comes in at, I love you like a brother until Jesus comes down and meets Peter at his level. Do you love me like a brother? So we've talked about those things. What I want to look at today is one of the things that we often don't like to talk about, and that's this. What do we do when we fail in our faith? What do we do when we sin grievously and it feels like there's irreparable damage done to our relationship with Christ, to our own souls, what do we do when our lifestyle becomes one that no longer glorifies Christ? What do we do when we realize as we look back over our lives, we have broken the promises we made to God? What do we do when we fail in our faith? Because make no doubt, Peter failed Christ. He fails him. As we said, he was ready to die by the sword of Jesus, but when he was confronted by a servant girl's questions, he failed and not only does he just deny Christ, but he denies him, and you get a sense that he's actually, he can still see Christ. There's like a presence there, because Luke adds this little poignant part in the scripture of the Gospel of Luke. He says this, Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Only Luke has this part in there. That somewhere in the, in the crowd ahead of him, and Peter's denying that he knows him, 
Jesus turns and looks at him. I've often wondered what that look was on Jesus' face when he looked at Peter. Was he disappointed? Was it a look of anger? Was it a look of pity? I don't know what it was, but Peter, whatever it was, was crushed. And he was so crushed that even though he still continued to, to be with the disciples, even though he was present when Jesus was resurrected, we get the sense, particularly again in the Gospel of John, and I think John and Peter were very close friends. You read the book of Acts, they spent a lot of time together. And I think part of John's Gospel, he kind of pokes at Peter a little bit because he has this friendship with him, but he also says some very deep things about Peter as well, which you don't see in any other of the Gospels. And you get the sense in John's Gospel when Peter says, I'm going to go fishing, he goes back to Galilee, that Peter, even though he knows that the horror of the cross is over, and that the resurrection is bringing hope and new life, he's not quite sure where he fits in with Jesus anymore. And when he says, I'm going to go fishing, the way that the language is in the Greek is that he goes, he's going to go fishing and he intends to remain a fisherman. He's going to go back to his old job. He, this wonderful ride of faith for him has crashed and burned. Jesus and the kingdom of God is going to move forward, but Peter's lost his place. Because of his denial. His denial was as much of a fact as Judas's betrayal was a fact. And he had no more place. So what do we do when we fail? What do we do when we break promises made to the Lord? What do we do when we get involved in sin that's so deep it sets up a chasm of guilt and shame between us and they're closest of our relationship with God. And if you've never had a serious failing in your life, good for you. Really, good for you. And I hope you never do. But if you do have a serious failing, like Peter did, like many good people I've known in my life in 35 years of ministry, like I have, then here's what you need to know. You need to understand something, especially if you're younger in your faith. You need to understand something. As you go along in life, at some point, it's likely you're going to make a promise to the Lord which you are going to betray. It's likely you're going to make a promise to the Lord that you are going to betray. One of the reasons why Jesus tells us not to take oaths, but just let your yes be yes and your no be no, because an oath taken in God's name is taken seriously. It's serious business. We shouldn't enter into these things lightly. In fact, Jesus says don't do it at all. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this about oath-taking. He says, again, you have heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to God. But I tell you, and when you read the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, but I tell you, what he's doing is redefining the Old Testament law. He's redefining it. Who has the right to redefine the law of God? Only God. He's redefining it. But I tell you. Do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black, or even keep them on your head at all. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no be no, and anything that comes beyond this is from the evil one. Now, Jesus says this for a number of reasons. 
One of the reasons why he says this is the Pharisees would often use oath-taking as a kind of manipulative tool, and Jesus just simply found that what they were doing was stupid. He says this, Woe to you, speaking to the Pharisees, Woe to you, you blind guides. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple which makes the gold sacred? So he just kind of found the way the Pharisees were dealing with oath-taking. It was just legalistic nonsense. And he says as much. But the other reason Jesus says, just let your yes be yes and your no be no, is because if we're going to be people of integrity, we shouldn't need to add on an oath to then make our yes mean something. Right? You shouldn't be a, we shouldn't be a people that's, well, we can lie unless we add an oath to it, then we can't lie. We're supposed to be a people that are simple. Our yes means yes, our no means no. But a third reason is this. These kind of oaths that we make to the Lord, when we make promises to God, Jesus knows that in our humanity, within our own failings of our sinfulness, we're going to break those. We may not may break them all, but we're likely to break some along the way. And when we do that, it sets up a break in our relationship with God. And that break is deeper than just falling into sin because we made a stand and we said, Lord, I am going to do this or I'm never going to do that. And we have a tendency to make these oaths to, the God, to God or promises to God when we're either at these high highs in our life like we're just walking on sunshine and everything's good and we're on a spiritual high and we say to the Lord, you know, Lord, I promise I'm going to. And then we just kind of fill in the blank there because we're feeling good, we're feeling strong. And then when the time comes we're not feeling good and we're feeling strong, that promise goes out the window. Or we make the promises when we're at the very bottom. Lord, I'm at the bottom of life here and if you just get me out of this, I promise. And then you fill in the blank there. And then the promise is when things get better, we tend to forget what the promise we made when we were on the bottom. And it just ends up being this cycle of broken relationship with God. And so Jesus says, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. And as Christians, we still fall into oath-taking. I don't know what to, to make of it, and this is just something I deal with. But for example, when we get married, we almost always do it with some kind of oath in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Now, I'm sure that, no one, that people wouldn't be happy if I said, you shouldn't take any oath. Just, you know, do you do this? Do you take this person? Yes. And if that was it. They'd be like, well, where's the ceremony in that? But, you know, these oaths that we take, you know, those are the ones, that's one of the ones that often gets broken, that oath of marriage. It's a serious oath. When Peter's denial came, it came with oath-taking. It says he denied them again with an oath. We don't know what that oath was. But he denied him with an oath. I swear, I don't know the man. And then he began to call down curses and he swore to them. I don't know the man. So not only did Peter deny Christ, but he also denied it and he took in oath-taking. I mean, the sin of his denial was as devastating as you can get. So what do you do? Well, the way home when we fail begins with humility. Okay, this isn't changing for some reason. The way home when we fail begins with humility. When you're in this place, one of the first things you have to do is you just have to humble yourself. 
Because what humility does is it recognizes that you sinned. Now sometimes, like I say, when people get into this place, instead of being humble about it and saying, you know, Lord, I have sinned and just kind of put yourself on your face before God, they'll try and reinforce themselves by making another oath. Lord, I failed at this and I swear I'm not going to do A, B, or C again. And that just usually ends up causing more trouble because in that place of, of, of failure, we are still trying to pull ourselves out by our own pride. And we usually make some kind of promise which is impossible to keep. You know, one of the issues that the church struggles with among men is the issue of pornography, especially with the Internet. And, you know, sometimes people will fail and they'll say something like, Lord, I, I failed in this place again. I promise I'm never going to look at pornography again. And I promise you, I'm not even going to look at another woman again. Well, that's going to be hard to keep. It's going to be an impossible one to keep. But those are the sorts of things we do when we're in that bottom place, instead of just being humble and saying to the Lord, you know what, I have failed. I have no excuse for failure. I need to stop making promises and just follow you. Because that's the way out. When you're in this place where you feel like you've desperately failed Christ, the only way out is to start following Christ again. Your promises aren't going to matter. Your promises aren't going to mean anything because your promises are broken. They'll come and they'll go, and we have a tendency to break our promises. We don't need more promises. We need to follow Jesus. And when you follow Jesus humbly, he will walk you out of this place. And part of following Jesus humbly is asking him for forgiveness, for seeking forgiveness, we're going back to a place of discipleship, but don't do it with a big show for yourself or for others. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. And if you fail again, then confess your sin in prayer and keep moving forward. You know, one of the things that I often have dealt with over the years is oftentimes people will have kind of a sin that they just can't seem to break out of, and they'll be very discouraged and they'll talk about all the promises they've made to God along the way about this particular issue. And of course, depending on you know, the gravity of that whole thing, one of the things I'll often tell them is the fact that you even care is a sign of life. Because most people wouldn't even care. A person that doesn't have the Holy Spirit wouldn't even struggle with it. The fact that you're struggling with it is a sign of life, that the Spirit in you isn't comfortable with what you're doing. So take heart. At least you're alive. Now, follow Christ and get out of this and keep moving forward, which brings to the second point. Moving forward spiritually is super important to recovering from sin. What a lot of people do when they are deep in a place of sin is they find themselves stuck. They find themselves stuck in that place of sin. And sometimes they're stuck because they feel like they no longer even have the right to approach God in prayer. They don't feel like they have the right to be around the church. They don't feel the right to be around Christ and his people, as if his people are somewhat all these shiny, holy folks. They think that they're the only ones that have ever been in this place. And so they will be stuck. And sometimes they will be stuck for years. And it's tragic, because it's a tragic waste of time and life. I've known people have told me that they had a call of God upon their life, for example, like to enter into ministry. But then... Somewhere along the way, they got derailed. They fell into a deep sin, and they've just sat there, and they've spun in that place of guilt and shame 
for years, decades. Some have spent their whole life never answering that call because they got stuck in this place of sin. Not that they kept in sinning in that way, but they were so ashamed that they just felt there was no way out. And it doesn't help that very often the church itself makes things even more difficult. These Donatists that I told you about in history, these were legalists. They were legalistic to say that these folks under the threat of horrible torture of their children, of their spouses, of the churches that they loved, they gave over scriptures, therefore they no longer have any place. They're irredeemable. That is a legalistic point of view. And it's the point of view of a person that has never been there themselves. Because one thing you'll notice is people who have been in that place of deep sin and have found the way out through Christ are much less judgy than folks who have never been there. And one of the things we have to understand when you come out of this place is that you have a choice when you're in this place of sin. You have a choice. You can either be in that place and just wallow in it and be in despair and always be out of step with God for the rest of your life on this planet. Or you can get right with Christ. And how do we get right with Christ? There's the confession of sin. 90% of the time, that confession of sin, in my experience, just needs to be between you and God. If you want to bring in one other person that you really trust, then that's fine. But it really is between you and God. Now, there are times that there are some legal consequences that you're going to have to deal with. You know? It's not unheard of that someone embezzles money from the church, for example. Well, there's some legal consequences to some of these things. You can hide in that place of sin the rest of your life, or you can deal with it and move on. It's not going to be easy, because when we sin, sometimes there are consequences beyond just simply asking forgiveness from God. But asking forgiveness is the first step. And what we need to understand when we, rely, when we ask for forgiveness is really this is relying on the grace of God. There are a few verses, there are a few passages of Scripture which have defined my life, and you hear them brought up all the time. Uh, probably one of the, the most you know, common one that I bring up over and over and over again is the whole fruits of the Spirit thing, right? That that is really the measure of being in Christ. Not speaking in tongues, not these other things, the fruits of the Spirit. Well, one of, these, one of the other passages that defined my life early in my faith was a passage where Jesus is talking to a bunch of guys who clearly are struggling with trusting God. And he says this to them. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, gives him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give, 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 good, give, ah, give good gifts to those who ask him? And the main lesson that I always took from this passage was this. At least believe that God is as good as you are. That's what Jesus is saying, right? You being fathers, you know how, you know, if your son or daughter asks for bread, you're not going to give them a stone. If they ask for an egg, you're not going to give them a snake. Why do you think God's any different? You being evil, fallen people, you know how to be good to your kids. Why do you think somehow that God doesn't know how to be good to you? At least give God the credit that he's as nice as you are. 
Because the truth is, he's infinitely better, right? He's infinitely better. But very often people go through life thinking God is somehow more cruel to us as our Father in heaven than we are to our own kids. And so we live under this fear. We live under this sense of we, we, we have this Father who's more cruel than we are. And Jesus is saying that's a crazy way to think. You have to understand you have a God that loves you. A Father that loves you. I'm a father. I'm not God. I'm a father, though. If my kids were in a place of desperate situation in their life, even if it was a sinful one, I would do everything I can to try and bring them out of it. And even if they wanted not to come out of it, they were kind of just being stubborn in that place, I'd still love them. I would still do my best for them. Why would God do any different? Why would the one who died upon the cross do anything different for you? Why would the one who shed his blood then turn his back on you? Why would he say he's paid such a huge price for your soul? He's not going to go, Matt, you blew it. And then walk away from you. This is a life changer if you can get your head around it. That God loves you. And he loves you more than you love anyone in the world. And he will do for you more than anyone else in the world would ever do. He loves you. Trust in that grace. Because that's the point, right? Trusting God's grace means that you trust that God wants the best for you. And the confession of sin isn't there to punish you. The confession of sin is to get you out of that place of sin and back into a place of righteousness where you can continue to grow in your relationship with God. It's not there just to make you feel bad. It's there to make you grow. It's a way out. It's a reminder Christ died upon the cross for you. And it's not just some abstract principle. It's a truth that we live. And if we're not willing to live it, then we are going to fall into that place of brokenness and we will never get out of it. Also, if you're not the one that's in that fallen place, but you're the one that's helping another person, understand that you're in a sacred place. And in that sacred place, you need to be honest and have mercy. There was a, when I was in Oregon, there was a pastor, I didn't know him personally, but the word got around quickly, who had, you know, I mentioned the struggle with pornography, that this guy, this pastor, went to his elders and told him, told them, I'm struggling with this issue. I want you to pray with me. I want you to walk with me and keep me accountable. And the elders fired him and told the whole community why they fired him. And I didn't know this guy personally, but believe me, every pastor knew about it. And what do you think was the, the impact that that had upon the pastors in the region? All it told us is we're alone. We are 100% alone. If we can't work it out just between us and Jesus, we're done. That's not a healthy message to be sending out. But that's what these guys did. They were the Donatists of their days, because believe me, that Donatist heart still exists today, which says if any flaw is found in clergy, then they're done. And we were sitting around this, this pastor group. You know, we used to meet once a week, and we were talking about this. And one of the things one of the guys said, he goes, well, 
I guess the thing I learned about this is I'm not being honest with you guys ever again. And we all kind of laughed. But in the back of all of our minds, we went, "Mm mm-hmm. I mean, I'll talk about the sin of, you know, watching too much American football on Sunday. But I'm not talking about anything deeper than that. Not that watching American football is a sin, by the way. Just 12 hours of it might be a problem. Be honest, but have mercy. Bearing one another's burdens doesn't mean you remove the burden from someone, then turn around and use it as a weapon against them. That's not bearing their burden. And again, people who have yet to experience failure in their faith are very often the harshest ones when it comes to helping out. And if you haven't been there and you can't imagine you ever will be there, we can be pretty self-righteous. But I can tell you, there's been numerous times in counseling with folks over the years when they're dealing with a deep sin issue, one of the things that often will come out of their mouths is, I can't believe I got myself into this. I can't believe I'm here. Because they never expected to be in that place. And accountability might be helpful, but here's my experience with accountability. If a person wants to persist in sin, then no amount of accountability partners is going to stop them. If a person wants to persist in sin, you can't, by your own strength, by your own uh, keeping tabs on them, prevent it. The only way they they, they can ever get out of it is if they want out. And if they're willing to humbly follow Christ, Christ will guide them out. Supporting and helping them as accountability is fine, but you can't stop it. And one of the most disappointing things that often you'll hear in these accountability uh, things, men's groups tend to have these accountability things. They talk about it a lot, but no one really wants to do it because they find out that no matter how hard you try and hold someone accountable, if they want to persist in the sin, they'll find a way. They'll find a way. And the only way out isn't going to be you. It's going to be them turning their eyes to Christ. You can be a support, but you can't fix it for them. So when you're walking with someone, just understand that your role is limited. Your role is to point them to Christ and let Christ do the rest of the work. And always remind them that the one who said, we're not just to forgive seven times or 77 times, but rather 70 times seven times, is our Christ. And if Jesus tells us, basically, you need to forgive no matter how many times there's a failure, if someone sins against you, then what is the expectation that God is going to have when he seeks to forgive us? Is he going to only forgive us seven times? No. Jesus tells us to always forgive because he understands that that is his character, to always forgive. And if you're going to be like him, you'll always be willing to forgive as he is always willing to forgive, you can always, always go to him. And this is a deep part of understanding God's love for you. If you're in this place, if you're in this pit, read, this, read the parable of the prodigal son. That's what the whole thing is about. This son that has all kinds of assurances of, of inheritance and has a place in this family completely blows it. Just goes out and and lives like a heathen. He completely blows it. And of course, what's the touching part of the story? When the son comes back, what does the father do? He runs to him. He runs to him. 
Like that song we sang today, which should probably be our closing song, you know, about running, you know, you come running after me, you come running after me. That's what God does. And then also read, if you're ever in this place of just total, you've just totally face-planted your faith, read the, the last chapter of the Gospel of John where Peter is reinstated. It is, for me, you know, I talk about those profoundly changing, you know, life-changing scriptures, that's one of them for me. When I came to understand how the language ch- changed, how Jesus went from saying, do you love me unforgiv- uh, unforgivably? <laughs> do you love me unconditionally? And Peter keeps responding, I love you like a brother. And then to realize Jesus brings it down to Peter's level. Do you love me like a brother? And that's when Peter really breaks down and cries and says, Lord, you know all things. That changed my life. Because it made me realize that Christ isn't sitting there trying to find reasons to keep us away from him. He's doing everything he can to bring us to him, including dying for us. What more could he do? And even after dying for us, he still looks at Peter and says, okay, if you can't meet me on this level, love me without any kind of conditions, then you at least love me at the level you can. And that's what Peter does. And Peter eventually becomes a person who is the rock, a person upon whom Christ does build the church, who is super influential in the early church, the one that really gives the apostle Paul a platform to speak and to eventually become one of the greatest missionary in the early church. It's all Peter. And I hope you never need this sermon. I hope some of you listening today are like, well, never been there. Don't ever expect to be there. Don't know what you're talking about. Good. I hope you stay that way. I honestly do. I mean, there's a lot of issues that we didn't cover in this, and maybe that attitude itself is kind of a problem. But if you ever do find yourself in that pit of despair, remember the grace of Jesus Christ and know there's always a way home. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we do thank you for the characters and the stories in your word. Guys like Peter, and we've talked about Peter quite a bit as this gospel of Matthew is coming to a close, as Peter becomes more of a central figure, and to be honest with you, usually in ways that really aren't all that positive. And yet we know from the perspective of history that Peter did become everything you saw him becoming. And that in his failures, which were epic, there was never a loss of hope. Judas lost hope. Even hope that he could find redemption. And he ended his life. Peter lost hope. We don't know why he didn't end his life. Maybe he just didn't feel like he had it in him to do it. But because he didn't, he found redemption in you. He found a new place, a new way. And Lord, we pray for those of us who throughout our life have had times where we have broken faith with you and we ask you to forgive us for that because we know, we know that's not something to be taken lightly. But Lord, for those that are still in a place of doubt about their relationship with you, a place of shame, guilt, Lord, we pray that you would help them, help us, 
with humility. Just turn our eyes to you. Deliver us from the temptation to try and make bigger promises. Make bigger oaths. Deliver us from the temptation just to sit in our pain and consider ourselves on the sideline for the rest of our life. Deliver us from the evil one that would want to say, you have no more place in this kingdom. Just sit down and be quiet for the rest of your life. Father, help us to walk out by following you. Following you out of the darkness into the light. And trusting in your grace. And we thank you that you love us more than we ever could understand. Love us more than we could ever love even our own kids or the people that are close to us. You love us more. You want more for us. You want the best for us. And may we just live that and trust that. And Father, for those that are ever in that place of trying to help a brother or sister out of that darkness, may we have humble hearts as well. May we be honest but have mercy as we carry one another's burdens into that place of the cross where they finally set down and given up to you in faith. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.